welcome uh, today to Free Church. Glad you are here this Memorial Day weekend and glad you took some time out of this holiday weekend to come and, and to worship and to gather. If you're joining us online, we want to welcome you as well, wherever you're joining us from. Uh, we are glad that you are here and hope that you are encouraged by the worship and the word that you hear today. Um, I've got just one announcement. Paula made a few announcements. One announcement I'd like to make and kind of like a, a tag-on announcement as well as we get into the message today is that in two weeks from today, it is June the 12th. And on June the 12th, we are having a summer kickoff beach party. And that's hard to imagine because it still does not feel like spring yet. But in faith, we are trusting that it will be above 45 degrees at the Oregon coast on June the 12th. And we're going to be caravanning there after our 11 a.m. service. And we really would love everybody who calls Free Church Home to kind of drop in throughout the day. We will be on the drive on beach right there in Lincoln City. And this is just going to be a time to connect. Uh, we'll have a bonfire. There'll be things like um, frisbee and football and waves and tide pools and all sorts of things to do. But really, we just want to take the opportunity to connect, especially as we enter into the summer and that will be one of the longest days of the year. So if you want to stay real late and watch the sunset, it'll be a really great and romantic time. And so please uh, join us, and it's going to be a good time. Also on that same day, that morning at 9 and 11, we're going to be honoring graduates as a church that day. And so if you have graduated from, or if you're graduating from high school, um, from college, if you're graduating from a, um, like a job training or if you're graduating from you know, different military positions, um, please let us know. We have a lot of people that we know who are, but we want to make sure that we do catch everyone to give you the opportunity uh, to be honored, to be prayed over. We'll have a gift for you. We'll be doing that on June the 12th. And then some other things coming up in service as soon as we've got baptisms the Sunday after the 4th of July. So if you have not taken that step in your faith to be baptized in water, we encourage you uh, to do that and celebrate with us. And then we just, we dedicated uh, 10 kids last weekend, and we're doing that again this August. If you have uh, children that you'd like to dedicate to the Lord, those are some things that we'll be doing. But with all that being said, I want to get into today's message. And we've been talking about for the last few weeks how when we preach through books of the Bible, it forces us to talk about, preach about things that you just typically wouldn't choose to teach on um, in a church service. And so that's challenging, but it's also exciting because it allows us to kind of dig into God's Word. And so last weekend, Tim Warnock did a fantastic job talking about the difference between clean and unclean animals and, and how on earth is that relevant to us today. And so we're looking at the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Today we are in the book of Leviticus. And we're going to be talking about the most holy day on the Jewish calendar, which is and was the Day of Atonement, and what that means, and specifically how it applies for us and to us today as Christians. And so where we are in this series is that the nation of Israel, all two million of them, are camped at the base of Mount Sinai. They have built the tabernacle. God's presence has filled the tabernacle, and God is giving, through Moses, instructions to the people of Israel on how they are to live as a covenant people. And so we've talked about the construction of the tabernacle. We've talked about how God wanted them to institute orderly worship, specifically looking at how Aaron's sons uh, were essentially killed by God 
for offering up strange fire or unauthorized worship unto God. And then last week, again, the distinction between clean and unclean animals. And so today, looking at the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16, continuing this account in Leviticus, God gives Moses and specifically Aaron, Moses' brother and the high priest of Israel, God gives Aaron instructions on how he is to approach the um, Holy of Holies within the tabernacle to worship God appropriately, but specifically, God gives Aaron instructions in how he and the high priest who would come after him, how they were to make atonement for the nation of Israel. And it's not just personal atonement that the nation would need for each individual, but it was actually atonement for the entire people because holiness matters not just for a person or family, but for an entire people group, an entire nation. And we're going to see that Aaron also is instructed not only to make atonement for the people and for the nation, but actually make atonement for the very systems of worship itself and the very tabernacle that God was worshiped in. And so I've said the word atonement about five times, but this is not a word that we typically would use. And so what is atonement? Uh, Atonement by definition in Scripture, specifically within the Old Testament, atonement is to cover up sin. Uh, Atonement is essentially to pardon sin. It is to bring an appeasement for the punishment of sin. And so Israel would need to and would continue to receive this covering of sin, to receive this atonement. They would do it through animal sacrifice. And the question comes up, well, why on earth would Israel sacrifice animals? Well, God asks them to, number one. Number two, animal sacrifice was not something that was strange in the ancient Near East as all of the cultures within the known world at that time offered up sacrifice. This was a typical way of life and specifically a way of worship. But animal sacrifice with the people of Israel, the people of God, it was a recognition that their sin separated them from God. Animal sacrifice was a recognition that sin required their life specifically their blood, at the hands of God. Animal sacrifice was a recognition that people could not live in the presence of a holy God being themselves, being ourselves, unholy. Um, An unholy person cannot abide in the presence of a holy God without essentially being destroyed. And so through animal sacrifice, animals' blood would be shed by the hands of the people in their place. And as they would shed the blood of animals, as they they would offer this atonement offering, as they would make sacrifices to God through animals, this was the people believing and obeying in faith that this very act would make atonement for their sin. But this sacrifice, this atonement, it could only be temporary because if we're just using logic, the blood of animals cannot forgive human sin. God asks us to do things not as ritual, not as magic, not as spells and curses and incantations, because blood doesn't forgive sins. Only God can forgive sin. And the reason only God can forgive sin is it's because only God that we've actually sinned against. And so for sin to be forever atoned for, for sin to be actually forgiven, for mercy to be applied to sin, 
for reconciliation with God to be made, a man would have to die, not an animal. Specifically, a man without sin must die for the sins of other men to be forgiven. And since only God is without sin, God took on flesh and he dwelt among us. And God gave his life for the ransom, the reconciliation of many. And so as people were offering animal sacrifices before the coming of God in the flesh, the man Jesus Christ, these sacrifices were acts of hope. It was an act of faith. And and I like to think of sacrifices that were made as a placeholder, if you will. A placeholder until Christ would come and make himself the permanent sacrifice, forever forgiving the sins that were only temporarily passed over, temporarily covered, temporarily pardoned by the sacrifices that were previously offered up. And so the sacrifice was a placeholder of a coming Messiah. Whether Israel fully understood this, if they understood all the implications of this as they were waiting, it's a little bit unclear, but they had great faith that God would take care of sin, and they had to wait for God to do that. And so as God gives Aaron instructions to make atonement through the animal sacrifice of um, animals for the people of the nation, God institutes this one particular atonement sacrifice on a day once a year. And so once a year on this day of atonement, the high priest was to perform the ritual that God prescribes, and it's a strange one, in Leviticus 16. The high priest, by doing this, again, he's going to atone for the people. And one thing you'll see as you read this is that it doesn't only atone for the people, but it almost gives a a master reset or a reboot of the holy space in the tabernacle so that the tabernacle itself would be holy, so that the holy of holies, the ark of the covenant, the, the altar of sacrifice, the altar of incense, the tent of meeting, the courtyard of the tabernacle, these things would actually be rebooted and made suitable for the very act of worship for the year to come. And so it wasn't only a sacrifice for the people, the nation, it was a sacrifice for the place, the tabernacle. And this would be, again, known as the Day of Atonement. So that's just a little introduction as we're about to read Leviticus 16. And as we go in to read it, um, I want to talk a little bit this morning about cleaning house. How many of you love cleaning your house? I have a love-hate relationship. I love having a clean house. I just don't like to clean it. I'd prefer if other people did it for me. And so I boss my kids around to do it. Um, A clean house is a beautiful thing. But with a clean house comes the recognition that there is filth in the house. It comes the recognition that there are parts of the house that are not clean. And one thing I have noticed throughout my life is that food in the refrigerator goes from being good to being rancid in about a split second. There is no eventuality. There is no slowness. There is no um, process of food becoming rancid. It just happens. And so you could open the refrigerator to get milk 
take the milk out, put it back in, close the refrigerator, open it up again, and the second time you open it, you can be overcome with the most rancid smell of rotting whatever that you've ever experienced. You're like, that wasn't there a second ago. And you're, absolutely it wasn't because it just turns like that. And so sometimes we will go minutes, hours. I've, my family's actually gone days looking for the source of a rancid smell in the refrigerator and actually have never found it. And so you will search throughout the refrigerator and you will look and the rancid smell continues to come out and eventually, hopefully, you find it. And when you take out that rancid, rotting, what is it in your fridge? Um, fish, <laughs> beef, pizza, whatever it is. Whatever that rotting food is in your refrigerator, you take it out to get the rancid smell out of your house. And when you take it out, you do what all of us do. You just set it on the counter and leave it. You leave it there until it basically just disintegrates. You see, when, when something is rancid and smells in your refrigerator and you take it out, you, you don't just leave it. Um, some of you have cats. And how many of you just love Cat litter. You love changing litter boxes. When you change the litter box, when the litter box smells, you don't leave whatever you have scooped out of that godforsaken litter box. You don't leave it on your kitchen counter either. Just like the rancid food, you do the same thing. You actually take it out of the house. Usually you put it in a plastic bag, you tie the plastic bag shut, you put it in the outside garbage, you close the lid over it and hope that nothing ever has to see or smell it again. When something is rancid in your house, you expel it. You get rid of it. You throw it in the trash, and the trash man comes, and he takes the garbage, and he drives it far away from your home, far away out of town to the dump, never to be seen again. And so with that in mind, let's look at Leviticus 16, verse 3. It says, in this way, Aaron shall come into the holy place. He will come with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. Aaron shall take from the congregation, verse 5, of the people of Israel, two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Verse 6, Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his family. So Aaron will sacrifice a bull for himself and for his household. He will sacrifice this on the altar in the courtyard of the tabernacle. He would then go into the Holy of Holies, and he would sprinkle the blood from the bull onto the Ark of the Covenant, making atonement for his sins and for the sins of his family, and he would apply the blood to the innermost space of the tabernacle, symbolically making it clean. So he goes to the very inside of the house, going back to house cleaning. This is a tent, and for those of you who enjoy sleeping in the cold on the ground, also called camping, when you go into a tent, and if you need to sweep that tent out, you always start at the back of the tent to sweep out all of the bugs and the spiders that have gotten into your tent and all of the needles from the tree, and you sweep them out, and you don't leave the pile of whatever it is 
in the middle of the tent, you sweep it out and out into the outside of your tent. So he starts at the Holy of Holies, and he works his way out. And so when you get to verse 7, it says, Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. And so a coin was flipped, essentially. A lot was cast. A coin was flipped and a goat was chosen to sacrifice to the Lord. If you're that goat, you want to make sure you pick the right heads or tails. And Aaron would sacrifice that goat, not for his sins, but he would sacrifice the goat for the sins of the people in the courtyard. He would enter the Holy of Holies again. He would sprinkle the goat's blood onto the Ark of the Covenant thus atoning for the sins of the people and applying the atonement to the innermost space of the tent, the innermost space of the tabernacle into the Holy of Holies. And so now the Holy of Holies has been atoned for. It's been made holy again. It's been reset. It's been rebooted for the year ahead. Aaron is now atoned for so that he can minister to the Lord in this space. The people are now atoned for so that the high priest can minister to the Lord on their behalf and in this space. Aaron was then to take some more of the blood. And it actually doesn't say if he takes the bull's blood or the goat's blood. I think it's applied he takes some of both. He takes more of this atonement blood, and he then applies it to the altar of incense inside of the tent of meeting. So there is a tent, and inside of that tent is the Holy of Holies, and on the outside of the Holy of Holies is an altar where incense was burnt to the Lord, and so he would take the blood, probably from the goat and the bull, sprinkle it on to the altar of incense, atoning for the entire tent so it's holy again, so that the priests can minister there on behalf of the people because the priests could enter into the tent, but only the high priest could enter into the Holy of Holies. And so this cleansing, like sweeping a tent, it moves outward now from the Holy of Holies to the tent of meeting, and now it moves out into the courtyard where Aaron was then to apply the atoning blood of, we know for certain, the blood of the goat and the bull, and he was to put it onto the altar of the courtyard so that it too would be holy again. So that now the people could bring their sacrifices into the courtyard because the people could go into the courtyard, and so that the priests and those who served the priests, the Levites, they could minister to God on behalf of the people at the altar. So a cleansing has been done of the tabernacle and of the nation and of Aaron and of his household. The tabernacle and the people are now atoned for. They are set apart. They are holy unto God. This is sacred space where God dwells. Not just the tent, but actually the entire camp is now sacred space where God dwells. But the sin didn't need to just simply be temporarily forgiven. The sin needed to actually be removed from the camp. And this is where it gets weird, as if everything we just talked about isn't already weird. But it actually wasn't weird for the culture in which it took place. And this is where it gets stranger, though. 
Leviticus 16, verse 8, and we'll look at verse 10. Verse 8 says, Aaron shall cast lots. We already read that part. But he will cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over that goat that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. Of course we all know what Azazel is, right? This is something we talk about all the time in the Christian faith. Actually, not at all. There is so much stuff that's going on in the Bible that we don't talk about. And if there is something you're unfamiliar with in the Bible, I would encourage you study it, dig into it, look into it to see what's going on. Many of you have heard of this story referred to as something called a scapegoat. Have you heard that before? This is a phrase we use to blame someone for your problems. It's like the old form of gaslighting. You make someone a scapegoat and you just send them away with the blame. This is actually not what's happening here. Um, The reason why, specifically, the New International Version will translate this word azazel into the word scapegoat is because the translators are trying to make sense of this Hebrew word that is used, and they will combine words that essentially are goat and goes away, and essentially they will say azazel is the goat who goes away, or the goat who escapes. And that makes some sense, but it's not actually accurate because it's incredibly clear that Azazel is actually someone's name. It says, one for the Lord and one for Azazel. It will be sent away to Azazel. This is someone's name. So most Bible scholars believe that Azazel was essentially an evil spirit who lived in the desert. We're getting weird now. Azazel is this evil spirit who lives in the desert. And a desert in the ancient Near East was always a place where demons were thought to dwell. There were jackals and owls and spirits, and this is the place where the demons lived. And so when Jesus goes out into the wilderness, who does he get tempted by? By the devil himself. The Israelites would have been very familiar with this idea of Azazel in the ancient Near East. And in fact, we know that between the years 500 B.C. and the time of Jesus, that Israel, throughout their literature, actually knew this evil spirit by name. The name, actually, of the chief fallen angel referred to in Genesis 6, in the book of Jude, and in First and Second Peter, known as Azazel. And the Jews during the time of Jesus, they would have read Second Temple period books that we know today as the Apocrypha. There was one particular book known as the Book of Enoch, interesting book, not canon. It is not something that we consider inspired by God to be in Scripture, but it's important to know that the Israelites during the time of Jesus knew of these things, and actually the New Testament authors write about these things specifically Um, in the book of Enoch, this spirit by the name of Azazel. And so if you look at the reference, especially that Peter makes to the book of Enoch in regard to this spirit named Azazel, we find out that Azazel is basically a fallen angel who along with, in the book of Enoch, 199 other angels descended upon Mount Hermon 
And they took for themselves women and bore children with them. This is what's recorded in Genesis 6. And they bore to them Nephilim, men of old, men of renown. And for this incursion and for causing mankind to sin during that day, the book of Enoch records that Azazel, along with the other fallen angels, during this incursion, they were bound in everlasting chains. That's what 2 Peter 2 talks about. They were bound in everlasting chains. They were sent to a prison beneath the desert in darkness until the coming of Jesus and the judgment of the living and the dead. And so if this is the Israeli, the Israelite, the Jewish understanding of who Azazel was, and if this goat is for Azazel and the other goat was for sacrifice, what happened to this goat that was to be left alive? We find out In Leviticus 16, verse 21 through 22, this seems weird. I'll show you how it applies to us. It says, Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat. And Aaron will confess over the goat all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions and all their sins. And the high priest shall put the sins of the people on the head of the goat and send the goat away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. Can you imagine being the ready guy? Like, just be ready anytime to take that goat out. That's you, the ready man. Verse 22, the goat shall bear all the iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let, that's the person, the ready man, he will let the goat go in the wilderness. This is bizarre. The forgiven sins, the atoned for sins of the nation are symbolically placed on the goat. The goat is taken out of the camp and it is sent out into the wilderness. Now remember, the Holy of Holies, the tent of meeting, the courtyard, the whole tabernacle, the camp of Israel and all of its people are atoned for and set apart for God so that God could dwell with the people in the midst of their camp. The camp is sacred space. Sin can't dwell there. And so just like when we take out the garbage and it is picked up by a garbage man and taken to the dump, so too is sin sent far away from God's presence. And if you look at it in context, it's actually sent in the mind of the people. It is sent back to where the sin came from to begin with, back to the wilderness, back to the place of demons, back to Azazel, back to the spiritual realm of evil, even back to Satan, who is the accuser whom all evil spirits serve. So God not only covers the sins temporarily, of the people and would one day forgive the sins, but God actually removes the sin from them, at least symbolically, reminding the people never again to return to sin. And because Azazel was understood by Israel to be a real entity, I believe that it was a real entity, by the way, but I believe that the evil spirits in the wilderness, I believe that Azazel would have seen that freed goat dashing away from the camp and toward him into the desert. The very presence of the goat, a proclamation that God does and will forgive the sins of man. 
The goat was a proclamation that the forces of evil and Satan, their leader, can no longer hold Israel's sins against them. The goat was a proclamation that the devil could no longer bring accusations against Israel because their sins were atoned for. The presence of this goat, the free, alive goat, the presence of the goat, was almost preaching to Azazel that Azazel and the spirits of evil would be bound there in the wilderness until the judgments. And for him and his forces, no atonement, no forgiveness was coming. Here's how this applies to us today. The Old Testament, it's true, it's history, it's real, but it's also pointing to spiritual truths that we possess today. Jesus is the sacrificial goat. Jesus is the sacrifice who forgives us, not just temporarily, not just covers, but forgives us forever of our sins. Like the goat, Jesus took on and became our sin personally bearing the penalty of our sin on himself. Jesus died with our sin, for our sin. Jesus shed his blood for our sin. And Jesus died in our place at the hands of his Father, a death that we deserve to die. His blood cleansed our conscience of acts that lead to death, Hebrews says. Our conscience can be cleansed through Jesus from acts and sin that lead to death. And typically, that's where we stop. Yes, my sins are forgiven. Amen. My sins are forgiven in Jesus so that I can get a stamp on my passport to go to heaven one day. And so the only thing I need to be concerned about is forgiveness of sins to go to heaven. But if we are looking at what Jesus represents here, he is not just the sacrificial goat. Jesus is also the goat who bears the message that our sins are forgiven. And in fact, 1 Peter chapter 3 writes of this very thing. If you could look with me, 1 Peter 3 verse 18. Peter, the apostle, writes of Jesus. He says, for Jesus also suffered once for sins. Not a yearly sacrifice, as Hebrews talks about. Not sacrifices continuously for sins, but Jesus suffered one time for sin. The righteous for the unrighteous. Jesus was righteous. He died in his righteousness to give the unrighteous, that's you and I, to give his righteousness. He does this that he might bring us to God, just like Aaron and the high priest represented Israel before God. Jesus brings us to God, and Jesus was put to death in the flesh, but he was alive in the spirit. We know he rose from the grave back to the flesh, but while he was dead, verse 19, it says that Jesus went in the spirit he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Jesus went upon his death and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because the spirits formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. The Apostles' Creed refers to this event. It says that Jesus descended into hell. We do not believe as Protestant evangelical Christians that Jesus suffered in hell, but here we find in 1 Peter that Jesus went to the place of the dead and he proclaimed to the spirits in prison. And so we have to ask, who were these spirits in prison? Well, according to 
Second Peter, according to Jude, according to Genesis, according to what the Israelites would have read during the time of Jesus, the spirits in prison were literally Azazel. And those held in chains of darkness waiting the punishment from Christ. The reference to Noah's flood makes this clear because that's when all of this particular event went down. And so Jesus had just permanently atoned for the sins of mankind. But your and mine, our sins, our sins weren't just simply forgiven. They were actually removed. And like the goat for Azazel, Jesus carried our sins back to where they came from. And Jesus made a proclamation to the spirits there in prison, as Peter says. So question would be, well, what did Jesus say? What was the proclamation that Jesus gave to the spirits who were in prison? And the Bible doesn't record this. But here's some things I think we could say Jesus would have proclaimed by his very presence there as he went to the place of the dead. And as he took those who were waiting in faith, those who had made sacrifices for centuries before, awaiting the coming of Jesus, as he would lead them from captivity in his train into paradise to be with him in heaven, what did Jesus say to those who were held captive? I believe he said, their sins are forgiven. They're free. You can't hold their sins against them any longer. You can no longer bring accusations against them. Revelation 1, Jesus says, I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death in Hades. I believe that Jesus would have been proclaiming by his very presence there that the enemy no longer had dominion over God's people. That this space, the space of the hearts of those who would trust in Jesus, this space is sacred now. I believe Jesus would have said, I came to snatch them from the grave and bring them with me to paradise. In faith, these people sacrificed for their sins to be atoned for with the hope that one day, only one sacrifice for all time would suffice. And that's me. You're still in chains and you will be thrown into the lake of fire. No weapon formed against them will prosper. I have saved them, and I am in them, and I who am in them am greater than all the forces in the world. They can do all things now through me who gives them strength. I not only have saved their soul, but I am saving their bodies, and I am saving the earth which you corrupted. Azazel, devil, all you forces of evil, I believe that what Jesus preached to the spirits in prison was just simply a message of you lose. You lose. And all their sins, all their sins are cast into the depths of the sea. So let's apply this. Jesus Christ has forgiven your sins. He has saved you. Jesus has declared his victory to the forces of darkness that you once followed. But here's what we don't focus on enough. Jesus has completely removed your sin. He's removed your sin from you as far away as possible. Back to where it came from. So look at Psalms 103. 
thousand years before Jesus, it says, as far as the east is from the west, so far does God remove our transgressions from us. Just like he took the sin from the Holy of Holies and he took it all the way outside of the camp and all the way into the wilderness, God removes our sins from us as far away as possible. Jeremiah 31, 34, and three other times in Scripture, this same sentiment is repeated. It says, I will forgive their iniquity, and this is the words of God, and I will remember their sins no more. So if Jesus has removed your sin, if Jesus doesn't even remember your sin, why can't you let them go? If Jesus has forgiven your sins and removed them as far away as the east is from the west, why do I have such a hard time letting them go? If Jesus did. You see, Jesus doesn't want to just forgive us, friends. He wants to cleanse us. We need to be cleansed. And so if you want to experience the freedom that God has for you, if you want to experience all God has for you, if you want to do the things that God is preparing you to do. You can't just trust in Jesus as the goat who died for your sins. You've got to trust in Jesus as the goat who sends them away. You're free. But some of us, me, you, we, we hold on to our sin. And why do we do it? Why do you and I hold on to our sin? Number one, shame. Some of us are just holding on to our sins. We're holding on to shame. We feel so much shame over the sins we've committed, almost not believing that God could actually love and forgive us for what we've done. But here's what God's Word declares over you. Romans 8.1 it says, There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And so if your trust, if your hope is in Jesus... He has removed your sin from you, not just forgiven them, but removed them so that you no longer have to walk in condemnation and walk in shame. I often find people who are holding on to their sins and not letting Jesus remove them, not because of shame, but because they actually enjoy reliving the glory days of their sin. You ever have someone tell you a testimony and it's not really a testimony. It's kind of like they're bragging about what they used to do. It's like, let me tell you about what Jesus saved me from. Oh, yes. And they like, get like a weird smile on their face. It's like, I don't think you're actually glad that Jesus removed that from you. It seems like you're still reveling in it. It seems like you long for those days again when Jesus wants you to move on from those days. And so if God has saved you from your sin, then celebrate it and so be it. But don't relive it as if it was the best time of your life. Because Romans 6.11 says, you must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. So those sins that you're boasting about, just knock it off because in Christ you're dead to those. The third reason why. We typically hold on to sin. It's not just shame. It's not just reliving the glory days of sin. But the third reason that we hold on to sin is sometimes we're just still not just reveling in it, but we're actually still living in it. Well, I'm forgiven of my sins, so I can keep on sinning. 
I, I am covered by the grace of God, and so I, I'm good. It's all covered. It's all good. I'm atoned for. But if you don't want to be free of your sin, and if you don't want sin out of your camp, maybe you haven't received forgiveness for it. Romans 6, 2 says, how can we who died to sin still live in sin? You can't say, Jesus, thank you for dying for my sin and continuously live in the sin he died for as if his life, death, and resurrection means nothing because that's exactly how you are treating it. And you might say, well, pastor, as a Christian, won't I still sin? Yes, you will, daily. The difference is, is that those who have trusted in Jesus to both forgive them of their sins and remove sin from them, they're convicted by the Holy Spirit when I, you, we do sin. And upon that conviction, we repent of sin, we turn from it, we pick up our cross, and we keep following Jesus in the obedience that he calls us to because he says, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. Here's how you can let it go. I'll ask our worship team to come up and lead us out in a song. But here's how you can let these things go. We've covered a lot of grounds. We've talked about the tabernacle and atonement and the bizarre history of this figure as Azazel. But if you walk away with anything today, please let it be this. How do you let sin go that you're holding on to? Number one, confess and be cleansed. Confess your sins and be cleansed. Cleansed from what? Cleansed from shame and sin. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful. He is just to forgive us of our sins. That's where most of us stop. And cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I love walking in the forgiveness of Jesus, but I want to be cleansed in the forgiveness of Jesus as well. I want to walk as a new person. I want to walk as someone who's been born again. I want to walk as someone who has been made a new creation, where the old is gone and the new, that's the Spirit of God, has come into my life. And so we, you and I, we must confess our sins to one another. James actually says when we confess our sins to one another and pray for one another, we're healed. The ultimate healing you and I can find is a healing from the shame that we hold on to from our sin. And so if you want to let sin go, confess your sins to God. Trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. Then process and share. Be vulnerable with brothers and sisters that you can trust in Christ to find cleansing for the sins that hold you back. Number two, you want to get rid of sin. If you want to let it go, you need to get it out of your camp. Get sin out of your camp. It's forgiven, yes. Why are you holding on to it still? Why are you allowing evil, sinful things to live in your camp? Because when the goat was sacrificed to atone for sin, the other goat had to take the sin out of the camp. So many of us as Christians, we accept the forgiveness but we don't reject the sin that we hold on to 
in our lives. Get it out of your camp. Now, this is practical in meaning that, yeah, you need to trust in the power of the Holy Spirit to abstain from sin. You need to obey the power of the Holy Spirit and follow Jesus for all that he has for you. But some of us, we just keep sinful things in our lives. Relationships that are pulling us back. Things that maybe used to mean something evil to us that we hold on as relics of our past life that God may be calling us to get rid of. So get the sin out of your camp. Number three, remind yourself that God doesn't. Remind yourself that God doesn't remember and hold your sins against you. What does that look like? That means when the enemy accuses you. That means when your own flesh comes up against you that you can say, I am forgiven of that sin. God has removed that sin from me as far as the east is from the west. His word says he remembers my sins no more and that they are buried in the sea of forgetfulness, some translations say. And so I don't have to hold on any longer. So I'm going to remind myself that God doesn't, that he doesn't remember. And then number four, remind the enemy that he has no authority over your life. That's what that goat symbolized. Went back into the wilderness to proclaim to Azazel that he had no power over the people of Israel. Just as Jesus went and preached to the spirits in prison that the forces of darkness have no power over God's elect, saved, rescued sons and daughters. And so you can proclaim God's victory over the enemy. And more importantly, you can proclaim God's victory over your self. My sins are forgiven in Christ. I'm free in Christ. You can't hold my sins against me any longer. You can no longer bring accusations against me. Jesus has dominion over my life. This is sacred space. Jesus snatched me from the clutches of hell to bring me to his kingdom. Satan, sin, hell, and all of its effects, you have no power over my life because I have submitted my life and the authority thereof to Jesus Christ, who has all power and dominion and authority forever and ever. I am free. Remind the enemy he has no authority, and remind yourself while you're at it. So if you could bow your heads as we close this in prayer. I'll provide you with some notes. If you're uh, part of our members and attenders Facebook group, I'll put some notes and some videos you can research about this subject we talked about today. But as I was done with my notes to preach this message to you today, there were two things that kept coming up into my mind. One had to do with the holiness of the church. If Israel took sin so seriously, that they continuously in faith made atonement for it, and it cost them something. And if they took such effort to get sin out of their camp in every way imaginable, why do we celebrate it in the church? 
there are sinful things that have become sacred things in the eyes of this world. That in the church, we have nearly embraced as to not offend people. People are going to be offended with the good news of Jesus Christ. Jesus made that abundantly clear. Why are we warring against the very thing that Jesus said would happen? In speaking of sexual sin, the Apostle Paul says, don't even let it be named in the church. So I speak to this church and prophetically to every church across planet Earth that calls on the name of the Lord to be saved. Why why do we coddle sin in the church? Why do we just kind of brush by it when Jesus died for it? Why aren't we in love with amazing grace and love and giving people hope? Why aren't we encouraging people, brothers and sisters in Christ who are bound to their sin, why aren't we encouraging them to repent and to walk away from sin, to die to themselves and to live for Christ? That was my first thought. My second thought, as my notes were done, was the thought that um, 19 children were slaughtered in our country this week. Dozens of people are slaughtered every week in this country. And I was thinking about the nation of Israel and how God had called that nation to be holy and set apart. And I just um, internally was in anguish and agony and, and weeping over this nation, which is anything but. The ground of this nation can only take so much blood from those who are murdered, from those whose life is cut short before they were even allowed the opportunity to be born. And if the nation of Israel took this so seriously that they would want their entire ground to be sacred, I was just in anguish over the fact that the ground of this nation is anything but sacred at all. And I was overcome with a loss of what on earth can a Christian do. And the only answer that I could muster, and I believe that the Lord confirmed in my heart, is it's got to start in me. And if I can repent of sin... And if I can allow my heart space to be sacred space, if I can allow my mental space to be holy ground, and if I believe, which I do, the truth that the Holy Spirit dwells within those who are saved, that means everywhere I go, I bring sacred space with me. Everywhere you go as a follower of Jesus, you somehow bring Jesus with you. So you might not be able to make the entire ground holy ground, but you can make this ground holy ground. So that where you go, people might know that there is something, that there is someone in you who is different. Who offers the message of a God 
who doesn't want to just complain about sin or point fingers at sin, but to offer solutions from a God who has already died to forgive it. And that one must simply receive. And to offer sacred space of a God who doesn't just forgive, but who actually removes sin. And I believe that as Christians and as churches put a stake in the ground of their communities, I believe that somehow it does hold back the enemy. Because Jesus says that he's building his church and the gates of hell can't prevail. And if the gates of hell can't prevail, that means that we actually have to go against the gates of hell so that they will not prevail. It's not a defensive stance. It's an offensive one of a church that is on the move and a church that is serious about going and making disciples. So would you, this Memorial Day weekend, allow God to take care of your sin? Embrace the forgiveness he's given it and then allow him to send it away? Would you remind yourself that you're free? Would you remind the enemy that he doesn't have dominion? Quit relishing in the glory days and instead live for the glory that's ahead? And then would you bring the church globally, in this nation, in the world that we live on, would you bring it before God in prayer daily? And remember that holy space goes to whatever space you go. You represent the forgiver. You represent our King, Jesus Christ. So God, as we bring these things before you, I thank you for your perfect sinless life in our place. I thank you for your death in our place, the death that we deserve to die. Thank you, Jesus, for the shedding of your blood and the sprinkling of your blood over our conscience. Thank you, God, not just for forgiveness and salvation, but that you remove shame and sin far away from us and that we are clean, new, saved, born again, and free. God, may we walk in the freedom that you paid such a price for. And God, we pray for our land. We pray, God, for just a, a radical move that can only be attributed to your spirit of people coming to the saving faith and the grace that you for the church, God, this church, every church on this planet that calls on your name. May the church choose to start in-house. May we take care of the sin that exists within our hearts and within our walls before we point fingers at the world outside. If there's anyone here that does not know you today, God, I pray that they would surrender their life to you, trust in you for forgiveness of sins become a new creation in you, living for you for all eternity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand?